look so nice, so that's what I like. Is that I said it here, how you just don't stop it and just get ready to jam. With Disco Daddy, wide world of hip-hop radio show. Every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific time, only on VibeLive.com with special guests every week. Don't miss it. <laughs> Hello out there, Disco Daddy here. Welcome to Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip Hop. And this is our very first show, our premiere. And we're honored to have one of the premier disc jockeys worldwide, not just West Coast or East Coast, but worldwide. His name is known all over the world, Mr. Egyptian Lover. We know him as Greg. Yeah. <laughs> How you doing this morning, man? Oh, man, I'm good. Good, good. Uh, 30 minutes is not long enough, obviously, to cover your career, but we're going to do our best to condense it as much as we can. Uh, what we'd like for you to do is to just give us a, a few minutes of how you started, uh, where you come from, where you were born, how you were raised, and what led you to become a DJ, Vegas One. Uh, well... I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California, and um, I was actually um, bus from the L.A. city to the San Fernando Valley, and it was a very long bus ride, probably about an hour and a half, maybe two hours. Hmm. So a friend of mine named um, Snake Puppy, who later on joined the L.A. Dream Team, decided um, let's do a contest and see who can make the best tape to listen to on the bus ride because it was kind of boring, you know, for two, two hours. What year were you talking about? Approximately. So about 1970, 1978. Okay. So um, we all went home and over the weekend, and I was I was recording records over the over the radio, waiting for the same record to come on so I could record to break down longer and longer and longer. And my little brother said, why don't you just go by the 45 and you have to break for the radio. You just... um by the 45 and, and recorded from the 45. I'm like, wow, you're a genius. <laughs> so I went to the record store <laughs> and I bought like four or five records, 45s, and um, I made a tape and did the breakdown over and over again, did the, the beginning over and over again by doing a pause button um, mixtape. Right. I brought it to the um, the bus and everybody loved it. And we played the, the tape like two or three times on the way to, on the way to school. And then um, 1979 came out and um, Rapper's Delight was uh, a hit record. So the following year, I was making mixtapes, you know, the whole time. But when mm -hmm. Rapper's Delight came out, everybody loved this, this new style of music. And they mm -hmm. wanted more than just Rapper's Delight. So I started making um, raps on the, the tapes that I was making for the bus ride. And mm -hmm. then um, the word got around school that, that I had mixtapes. So everybody started buying these new raps that I was doing on these mixtapes. And um, I became a local celebrity at my school at James Moore High School in the San Fernando Valley. And after that, um, there was one guy um, came up to me. This is probably 1981 now. In 1981, this guy, walking, a grown man, walked up to me um, when I was getting ready to get on the bus to go back home. And um, he said, are you Egyptian lover? And I'm, I was kind of scared. Like, uh-oh, what did I do? You know, okay. I was like, so yeah. you, you had been using the name Egyptian lover in high school? Oh, yeah. Okay. I had the name for a long time. Okay. So it was like, um, I heard your tape, and I want to know if you can do what you did on this tape at my club, and I can give you $500. I'm like, yeah, I could do it. <laughs> wow. So 
I went home and and I was trying to learn um, how to do the pause button mixtapes. From the the tapes that I was doing pause button mixtapes, I was trying to learn how to do that with turntables. Mm-hmm. So a friend of mine brought over his turntable and went to Radio Shack and we bought a mixer. And um, I learned how to do the edits from the pause button with the records. So I mm-hmm. practiced for like two weeks, and then it was time to do the show. And I had it down. I could make the record repeat three times. I called it the triple thread, and I could do you know doubles with the with the going back and forth with the records. I had to buy doubles of every record. And I learned actually how to mix the records. So I show up at the party. That was, that, that was your first year actually using turntables. Yeah, that was 1981. And then I get to the club, and he says, oh, I didn't want you to, to mix. I want you to do this rap you did. <laughs> so I thought, oh, wow, I learned how to DJ for nothing. I got up there, did my one rap song. He gave me $500, and I went home. I'm like, wow, that's just too easy. And then um, I learned how to DJ already, so then I started doing my um, my um, parties at high school with turntables and everybody really liked what I was doing and when I got out of high school I started doing parties for everybody and started doing more parties by 1982 um, I was doing um, big parties at, at hotels but I wasn't getting the, the kind of people that I wanted mm-hmm. so like I would I would get a hotel room that hold about 600 people and I would only have like maybe 200 people in there and Uncle mm-hmm. Jim's Army was in full full blown mode right now and um, they were just getting down. They were snatching down my posters, and I was like, "Wow, I can't beat Uncle mm-hmm. Jam's Army. They are too powerful. Too many people in the, in the crew." Mm-hmm. So one day I was in the mall, and the main guy from Uncle Jam's Army was passing out flyers, and, and he gave me and Snake Puppy uh, that was Roger Clayton, mm-hmm. and he gave me and Snake Puppy some flyers. And Snake Puppy said, "Man, Uncle Jam's Army is the best dance promotion team out there, but y'all don't have the best DJ." And mm-hmm. and Roger knew us from coming to the party. Was like. Who, who's the best DJ? And Snake probably pointed to me and said, Egyptian Lover's the best DJ. Mm. And um, he's like, you can mix? I'm like, yeah. And so he said, mm. come with me. So he went to um, a recording studio to do the next commercial for the next Uncle Jam Army party, mm. which was in, I think it was in Long Beach or somewhere. Mm. And um, I, I was kind of queuing up the record in the beginning of the, of, of the, the commercial. And um, Roger said, what's that? And I said, well, they call it scratching, but it's really just queuing up the record out loud. He said, do put that on a commercial. So I went, dick, dick, and he loved it. And he's like, let's leave it in the commercial. And so everybody heard that on the commercial. And he said, we're, we're going to have a DJ contest. And so he put that on the commercial. And it was like four or five DJs at the at the party that night. And um, this was um, early 1982. Now, who was scratching? Were you really into scratching, scratching, or were you just, by 82, were you just getting down the fundamentals of what that was about? How long you I, I was just getting into it. I mean, Buffalo Girls was out, and I heard it from that, and I said, oh, that's, that's not scratch, that's cue on the record out loud. I know how to do that. So I knew how to do it already. It's just I didn't, I didn't know it was a thing. I even mm-hmm. asked one of the DJs from Uncle Jeff's Army, "Do you know how to scratch?" He said, "Oh yeah, that's old. We don't do that no more." So I didn't think it was a thing. <laughs> I don't know if he, I don't know if he knew that I said scratching or scatting. Right. <laughs> I don't know what. Oh, okay. <laughs> he said scratching was old, so I didn't think it was no, no big deal. So I just did minimal scratching, you know, different parts of the record and, and different things. Mm-hmm. And so after mm-hmm. Buffalo Gals came out, I'm like, "Yeah, I could do that," and I started doing it. And Grandma's Flash had a, a record called um, 
wheels of steel or something like that. And he did a lot of tricks on there. I was like, yeah, I could do all that. And I was doing them at the parties. People were like, wow, that's dope. And I would add my own style to it and then keep the party going. And, and everywhere I did the, the scratching and the turntable tricks, people really liked it. Okay. So when, when, I ended up joining, when I ended up joining Uncle Jam's Army, I already had an arsenal of tricks I could do on the turntables. So it was like five DJs up there. And, of course, I was the youngest one. They pushed me up on the turntables first. Mm-hmm. And they gave me Aretha Franklin's jump to it. And it wasn't really a, a party song like you hear at Uncle Sam's Army, but I guess it was right. trying to me. So I put mm-hmm. the headphones on. I listened to the beginning. I never heard the song before ever in my life. I just I heard it. I saw it said Aretha Franklin. I'm like, no, nah, this ain't going to happen. But I listened to it. In the beginning, it was like an acapella of her singing, jump, jump, jump to it. And then the, the beat came in. And it was like a drum beat for a couple bars. And the bass line came in. I said, well, they got a beat. I can keep the beat going. And maybe just scratch the part that says jump. So I kept doing that. I kept starting to beat over, you know, boom, clap, boom, clap, jump, 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 boom, clap, boom. And I kept going back and forth, left and right. People actually got up out their seats and started walking toward the DJ booth and started staring at what I was doing. Then I would let the bass line go, and I kept going, jump to it, jump to it, and then hit the beat again, hit the bass line. And I was going back and forth, just making it a party song, just at the, yeah, from the very yeah. beginning bar. And uh-huh. and when I looked up, everybody was looking. Everybody in the party was looking. They were standing on tables, standing on chairs, looking over, like, what the hell is this dude doing? So then Roger came from the front door, and he ran to the DJ booth. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'm in trouble or not. He says, Egypt, that's you? I'm like, yeah, he says, Man, so by that time, three DJs had already turned around and walked away. Three mm-hmm. DJs looked at what I was doing and just turned around and walked away like I, I can't beat them. Mm-hmm. Two other DJs were still there. And um, Roger said, what record do you want? I said, any record? He said, any record. I said, all right, give me um, Tom Tom Club. Give me um, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Give me Grandma's mm-hmm. Flashes. It's nasty. And he gave me all these songs that sound like he used to love. And I just went crazy on them. Right. I um, Grandma's flash going, two turntables, two, two, two turntables, and the crowd was just going crazy. And I just kept flipping records back and forth on the turntables, going back and forth, left and right, back and forth, just killing all the records at the same time. And then, I, then I, the last one I put on was Yellow, because nobody ever heard that song before. And I brought it from home, and it went, yeah! And then everybody just went crazy, like, what is this? And I just rocked the crowd. And um, the other DJ left, and then one DJ was left, he said, man, how you get up here? I said, well, my friends drove me. said, you got to ride home? I said, no. Nah. I said, I'm going to take you home because if I take you home, then I got a job. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm the first driver. <laughs> so his name was Iceberg. Oh, okay. I taught him. He's so, from Atlanta. Uh, you were the character. I taught him how to obviously. DJ. Okay, you were the character, obviously. I got two questions, however. Why did you pick the name musician number uh, years before? Well, growing up in the hood, everybody had their names on the back of their jackets and everybody was picking mm-hmm. gangster names so, so you know like mm-hmm. knock you out one punch 22 right. you know all kind of whatever gangster names they can have and i noticed they was having fights every day trying to protect their name and i said mm-hmm. wow well, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make my name like a lady's name like egyptian lover so instead of fighting maybe the ladies want to <laughs> talk to me or something so i put egyptian lover on my jacket and i just kept the name okay now the other question the same question i asked your friend christy love taylor when you were learning the scratch, how many needles did you break? None. We had some great needles. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because that was one of the things I said. Well, I never scratched, but the few attempts I did, uh, the expensive needles I broke, I said, this is it. It's not going to happen with this. Oh, I just stayed away from that. But 
your career took an interesting twist once you joined Uncle Jam's Army. Uncle Jam's Army, for my listeners out there, was the premier party uh, promoting uh, team out here uh, from the uh, early 80s uh, up until, what, about 85, 87? Yeah, like 87. Or so, which but even after that, yeah, they they was doing a lot. Right. Doing, doing stopped doing many parties, but still was doing it. Okay, but around 1984, you guys took a turn. You decided oh, yeah. to make a record. Uncle Jam's Army Party promoters were now uh, a record company. Which uh, yeah. can you tell how you and Roger Clayton, the founder of Uncle Jam's Army, uh, what at what moment? Did the light come on and say, hey, we don't have to just be party promoters. Let's go in the studio and then cut some dance. How did that happen? Well, ever since I've been in high school doing the, the mixtapes, putting raps on tapes, I've been wanting to make a record. So it was always in the back of my mind, I want to make a record. So when I got with Uncle Jam's Army um, and I saw many people were coming to the, the parties, I'm like, man, we should do a record. And, of course, nobody in the whole crew knew how to rap. So... It was always in the back of my mind, okay, I need to do a record. I need to get my name as popular as possible with Uncle Jam's Army so mm-hmm. I make a record. At least these people will buy the record. Mm-hmm. So eventually um, I, I got real popular by DJing, and then a friend of mine said, hey, man, there's a lot of cats out here copying the style of DJing, but there's this one cat that came from New York that's DJing at the club radio that doesn't have your style. He has his own style because he mm-hmm. never heard you um, mix before. His name is Africa Islam. So I went down mm-hmm. to the radio and I checked him out and I was like, oh, cool. It's a different style of, of, of mixing and cutting and scratching. So yeah. I said, Africa Islam, that, that, that's kind of cool. It sounds like Africa Nevada. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, man, I know him. You're not calling my pops. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. I said, you know him? I said, well, how did they get that, that drum sound on Planet Rock? Mm-hmm. He said, oh, it wasn't mm-hmm. a drum. It was a drum machine. And nobody knew what a drum machine was back then. Wow. I'm like, a drum machine? And so I said, oh, what kind? What is it? He said, they got what, a machine. What year is this you had those conversations? 82. Okay, 82. Okay. 1982. introduced to the 808. Was it an 808 drum machine at the time? Yeah. So he told me, they had him at the guitar center. So we went down to the guitar center. He showed me what it was. It rolled in TR-808. And um, I had the, the sales clerk help me program Planet Rock on it. And then I just started adding beats to it and changing it up a little bit. And when I was listening to it, I said, man, this sounds like a record already. You don't need anything. And people in the guitar center was coming following, you know, coming up behind me and looking at it and like, oh, shit, I got to buy this thing. You know, I, I can make beats. And so I bought it, took it home, and I had like two weeks before the next sports arena party. And I just filled the whole drum machine full of beats. And then I brought it to the, the sports arena party, and I started playing Planet Rock. And right on the breakdown of Planet Rock, I played the 808 and turned down the, the Planet Rock record and kind of peeked at the, the all 10,000 people at the L.A. Sports Arena, and they were still dancing. And in my mind, I was like, ha, 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 I got them dancing. Too. <laughs> uh-huh. And I started adding beats to it and changing the beats up and breaking it down and changing it up. And then um, a couple people started saying, what record is that? What record is that? And then Roger came over to me and said, man, what record is that? And I said, man, it's not a record. It's a drum machine. And he peeked over and said, you're playing music out of that? I said, this is the only thing playing right now. And he freaked out. And then the whole crowd was, was just partying. And then I said, check this out. And I changed the beat. And there was this, this crazy beat going with a bunch of bass kick drums going everywhere. Like, boom, 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 boom. And this was way back when Planet Rock was just boom, 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 boom. So, he, I mean, I was doing like crazy beats. 
and the whole mm-hmm. crowd just started freaking like crazy. There's a dance called the freaking. Everybody started doing the dance, and everybody mm-hmm. was screaming like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I got on the microphone, and I said, yes, 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 yes. Wow. And I told everybody to say it after me, and everybody started screaming, yes, yes, yes. And Rod said, okay, wow. we need to do a record. We need to do a record. I said, yeah, we need to do a record. So that, that wow. weekend, we went to the studio, and we recorded yes, yes, yes. And then I also wrote a song called Dollar Freak. We put that on, on the, the, the other flip side of yes, yes, yes. And that was Uncle James Army's first record. So it was actually me and Roger Clayton. We went half and half on the Freak Beat label. And we did our first record, brought it to the radio station. The radio station put it on right away. And it, many requests was um was um called in for that record. And it was just, it you started a great whole Mac, trend in great that life. KA at the time? Yes. Did and it was just a, a big thing at the time. I mean, everybody loved that sound. I mean, right. people start copying the sound, and everybody. I mean, there was actually a song called "Hello Baby" by MCQP. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Dr. Dre was doing it. Um, Arabian Prince. I mean, everybody heard that that sound. That mm-hmm. I took the, the beats from like Kraftwerk and you know made them kind of funky. And then I took the the lyric style from Prince, and um, mm-hmm. you know, got the idea of putting a sexy Prince style rap to a futuristic electronic beat from Kraftwerk and said, yeah, that's going to be my sound. That's going to be the Egyptian lover sound. And then everybody started copying it. They call it the West Coast sound, but it was really mm-hmm. something that I created, you know, listening to both of those groups. And being a rapper and, a, and, a, and being a rapper and a DJ at the same time, I kind of got the idea when I saw you DJing. I went in your club one time and you were um, DJing. You started rapping on the mic. Take it. Phone out. Excuse me, everybody. <laughs> I did not turn my phone off. <laughs> okay, and I'm sorry to interrupt so, you, guys. Very so I went went to the club and I saw you um, DJing. Then I also saw you get on the mic and you start um, doing a rap. I said, "Oh wow, he's DJing and rapping." Hmm. That means I could do both. I, I don't have to just pick DJing or rapping. I could actually do both. So I started DJing and rapping and um, doing the whole thing. So I, I figured then I don't need nobody else to, to work with me. I could just do everything on my own. So then I went back to the studio after we did Dollar Freaking Yes, 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 because I was so excited about that record. I went back in and I made Egypt, Egypt. And I brought it out and I played it for Roger and, and Uncle James Army. And it's like, wow, this song is even better than Dollar Freaking Yes, Yes, Yes. But we can't pull it out. We have to hold it. So we held the record back for seven months. And then we put it out because we didn't want to... Um, Kill Dollar Freak, but I thought we could put them out at the same time and just keep making records, just make a bunch mm-hmm. of records. But mm-hmm. so I didn't like that really, and so mm-hmm. I said, you know what? I need my own record label so I can put out music when I when I want to put it out. So I started wow. Egyptian Empire Records and kind of left Freak Beat to Uncle Jam's Army, and mm-hmm. still did like fifty fifty with them, but also had my own Egyptian Empire Records. Okay, now you were heavily influenced, and I say heavily because there was no other DJ that I know who took the turn that you did uh, with the creation of the electro-funk hip-hop. I mean, now, uh, Planet Rock was one thing. You took it to another level. How influential was the German group, I think they were from Germany, Kraftwerk, in uh, conceptualizing your musical path from that point on when you left Uncle Janet's Army to start? Oh, they were very, very important to the cause. I mean, Kraftwerk was the future electronic beat. And then Planet Rock took it and made it a little bit more funky by adding a little more bottom end to it and just made it more danceable. Because when you play Kraftwerk's numbers, I mean, the beat, the bass just wasn't there. It was a good groove to listen to. But once you put it at a party over those Surum Vegas speakers, the bass just was not there. So Planet Rock had that, that bass. 
and that's what I was I was into that that beat, you know. And then um when I got the eight oh eight and made it even more bassier, I made it Egypt Egypt and just made it more funkier, more bassier, you know, more for the urban city to, to party to. And then while I was in the studio, the engineer actually um wanted to milk the he was gonna pay about an hour, so he wanted to milk the time. So he told me that he had to, you know, mix the record and bring every sound up one by one and EQ it and you know, make it quiet. So we bought these gates that that, that takes the, the noise out of the, the sound and makes the sound clean. And that sounded good, but it took a long time to do it. So it took like four hours just to get the beat EQ, then another two or three hours just to get the, the sense and, and the vocals EQ. And it was just um, like stalling time just so he can make more money. But in the, in the end, the song came out, you know, sonically incredible. So it was like, wow. So even 35 years later, the song still sounds better than a lot of songs that are out right now because it was so um, engineered and, and mastered, I mean, mixed and mastered so well. Now, you're one of the few DJs, East Coast and West, that still travels extensively all over the world. Uh, tell us how you first uh, noticed that your uh, sales overseas were increasing your popularity was increasing. How did that happen? I, I know it didn't just start out when you just put out your first record. There must have been a gradual awareness of you worldwide. How, how did that come about? Well, uh, so as soon as I put the record out, um, it was I was kind of lucky because the 1984 Olympics were happening in L.A. Right. And K-Day was playing the record. Um, Kiss FM was playing the record. A lot of people were playing the record. Every club in L.A., mm -hmm. no matter where you went to, was playing the record. No matter if they was playing a disco or whatever, they would also play right. my stuff. So all the Olympic people, people that was coming here to watch the Olympics and, and all the people that were in the Olympics, when they went to these parties, they heard this record. And a lot of them recorded it um, off K-Day and a lot of recorded, you know, different things. I went to the mm -hmm. record store and said, what's the hottest records out here? Because we don't have music in Poland. And they would buy mm -hmm. the hottest records. And I just happened mm -hmm. to be one of the hottest records at that time. So I used to get fan mail from all over the world saying hi my my cousin was in the olympics and they they, they brought a tape back and i would love to buy your music they took a picture of, of this record and i need to buy your music and um i thought that that's how it, it spread but then there was this one company in new york and they were buying a lot of my 12 inches i mean a lot so like they'll buy five thousand then they'll order another five thousand a week later you know, order ten thousand a week later, and then you know another five thousand, another ten thousand, and so eventually it was up to like three hundred something thousand copies, and they, had, they already paid for them, and they was ordering another twenty thousand copies. So then they fly out to New York. New York must be booming. New York must be booming because I'm selling all these records in New York, but but I ain't getting no shows in New York. So I took a flight to New York, went to the record store, and there was a tiny record store. It looked like somebody's bedroom or something and i went to my spot where it said um the egyptian lover car was at it was like five records in there I'm like he just ordered like twenty thousand dollars worth of record where are, where are all the records at and so he came on and said oh man egyptian lover man you're making me rich like, you're making me rich too <laughs> so what's going on he says he says um all the music i buy from you i i exported over to london and germany and, and, and all of Europe, I'm like ah, so he was he was the only one exporting them, and he was exporting a lot of them. So then all the fan mail was getting from London and Germany and France mm -hmm. and, and all those places. I knew now it's starting to make sense that it wasn't everybody at the Olympics. Right, right. It was a handful at the Olympics, but now he was exporting it, and and um, he was um 
putting my name out there. So I was like, oh, thanks, man. This, this is cool. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that's how the exporting started for me. And then mm-hmm. I started doing shows out there probably when the Internet um, kicked off and MySpace was a thing. Um, I joined MySpace, and then um, people could actually find me now because, you know, back mm-hmm. in the day you have to have my phone number or the office line or a fax number, and a lot of people didn't have that. So now you can just Google my name and they'll say MySpace and they'll hit me up on MySpace. Hi, are you the religious and lower? We would love to have you in Paris. We would love to have you in Holland. You know, and I was like, yeah, this is me, da, 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 da. Then I'll get my email address and then start hitting me, you know, professionally. Right. And then um, okay. the Internet just, just started going on and on and on. And that's how I started getting more and more bookings. And then the word of mouth, he has a great show. And then it just kept going on and on and on to this very day. Okay. You recently completed a project uh, last year, as a matter of fact, which takes us back to 1984. Uh, can you tell us about that project and uh, basically what uh, inspired you to do that? Because I understand you used the same techniques to record this album that you used in the original analog version of the record. Same machines, uh, am I correct? Oh, yeah. So I called the album um, 1984 because I went back to the same studios I used in the year 1984. And I used the same equipment, the same 808 drum machine, the Jupiter 8 synthesizer, the same vocoder. And I used the same um, style of um, writing the songs. So I actually went to the studio, made the beat, and, and, and programmed the same way I did back in the day and, and laid the tracks down the same original way I did back in 1984 and came out with the same sound. Now you got 12 brand new songs that sound like I made them back in 1984, but actually I made them in 2014 and 2015. And the record it was so popular that I'm actually recording 1985 right now. And I got Nucleus in on it. I got um, Ron Atkins from Cybertron in on it. And it's a great album. Wow. Yes, it is. Now it's coming out in 2018. Okay. Now, you've got... Um you still have your own label. Uh, are there any other artists that you work with or you produce on your label that you like want to know about or anything, any upcoming projects from Egyptian Lover besides the one you just mentioned for 2018? No, I'm, I'm pretty busy working on my own stuff and, and I'm my own booking agent, you know, my own artist, my own record label, so I got like a full-time job <laughs> doing those three I things. I got you, I got you. So, working in any No time for nobody else. Right. Oh, yeah, right. a movie, a documentary. and. Okay. Oh, yeah, I'm doing that, and then I'm also writing movies. Okay, can you show oh, no, yeah. it, or are you trying to keep things under wraps? Yeah, it's, it's, it's under wraps right now. <laughs> okay, I got you, I got you. Are we going to be seeing a book from Egyptian Lover? Oh, yes. Okay. I'm working on all that right now. You got a, you got a title for it yet? Not yet. Probably, it's probably going to be the Egyptian Lover. Right. Now, you've also worked with uh, Chris the Glove Taylor. Yeah, that, was, that was back in the radio days when I went back in um, club radio and met Africa Islam. They had Ice T there, they had Chris the Glove, Taylor. You know, I knew Chris from from the neighborhood, so we, we were like, "Oh yeah, cool." So we all just started DJing, having fun at the club radio, and just enjoying ourselves as kids, just enjoying music. Okay, he's on our show this week also. Now, taking us back to radio and the radio tron, you're one of the few artists who remember how. Influential, do you think that club was first radio and slave became a radio charm in the development of a hip hop scene here in Los Angeles? Well, Radio Tron was, I think, a percentage 
of what I was already doing with Uncle Jam's Army. And Radiotron was on a smaller scale compared to what Uncle Jam Army was already doing. And Uncle Jam Army even had more elements to the hip-hop um, world. I mean, Radiotron had the graffiti writers, the breakdancers, and the DJ, and, of course, the MC. And Uncle Jam Army had all that, plus they had punk rockers, and they had a mod, and they had the Freak of Tears, and they had parts of the hip-hop world on the West Coast that's not even known to the world because it was more of a, a Uncle Jim Army thing. I mean, these mod um, guys used to wear these trench coats with buttons all the way down one side of the thing, and they used to do these dances called the mod dances. And the punk rockers would actually love the hip-hop music, but there were so many punk rockers there that we had to actually make some punk rock into our sets just to keep them happy, like one or two songs a night, just to keep them happy. And that's where we got our style from, like me and the glove, wearing the spikes on our hands. And that all came from the punk rockers and, and, and the New Wave crews and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was Uncle Jam's Army was a bigger world, and, and Radio Club Radio was like a country. <laughs> Uncle Jam's Army was a planet, and Radio Tron was a country. Okay. Now, you travel all over the world. Um, obviously... You would love to do this forever, but do you see any end to your touring? And you have a very heavy tour schedule. You're popular in so many countries. I'm not even going to try to listen. But basically, uh, you're one or two DJs whose popularity has continued to grow. Um, what, what do you attribute that to? Um, the entertainment factor. When you come see my party, you're entertained, and it's not boring. I mean, I'm not just up there playing records. I'm up there right. playing my vinyl records that I played back in 1980s and I'm playing my drum machine live and showing the crowd what the drum machine is because a lot of people don't even know what a drum machine is. They just know the 808 has a kick drum. But I'm showing them the actual whole machine. I'm picking it up and showing it to them. I'm rocking it with them. Then I'm performing my own songs and doing my old school dance steps and I'm giving them a whole element of the Egyptian lover, the evolution of the Egyptian lover. And they're entertained. When they leave, they're like, wow. He wasn't just a DJ. He was actually an entertainer. He, he entertained us, and I want to see him again. And that's why the promoters who were there from different festivals, different clubs, say, man, I was at your show at blah, 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 and I have to have you on this festival, and da, 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 da. And it's just going on and on, word of mouth, and thanks to the Internet. And, and I'm doing shows like for Red Bull Music Academy, and also I'm doing things for Boiler Room. And it's just incredible. So YouTube and Boiler Room shows, you can see them on there. Like I just did one in Vietnam. And they did a boiler room with Budweiser, and it's it's incredible. People love watching it, and so when promoters watch this. They I gotta have him at my festival, so it's like I'm yeah. booked up all the way this year. I'm I'm solid booked up, and I'm mm. already booking shows for 2018. Mm. This is Egyptian Lover on Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip Hop, and this is truly a worldwide traveler. Great Rashad, Mr. Egyptian Lover, we want to thank you for your contribution to hip hop and for all you've done for the West Coast. And we'd like to know, uh, where can people find your music on the Internet for purchase, my brother? If, if I were you, I would go to bandcamp.com. Bandcamp.com has all my, um, they have my anthology from Stones Throne there from 1983 to 1988. Also my 1984 album, and I put a new one out called Instrumentals and Demos, which is a bunch of instrumental tracks and demos that never came out, and people actually love this, who love music and love beats. So you can find all my stuff on Bandcamp.com as well as all the other um, digital sites. And you can also find the vinyl and record stores. Spell that for us right quick. So they do the case of B or B. Spell it for us. Where they can go. B, Bandcamp, B-A-N-D, 
C-A-M-P. Bandcamp. Yeah. Decent boy. Okay, gotcha. All right. Mr. Egyptian Upper, Red Crusade, I want to thank you for your time. Five Flies, L.A., and uh, just today's Wide World of Hip Hop. Really appreciate the time you've taken to illuminate mm, your history you. and your contribution to hip hop. And we want you to come back in the future because we know the Egyptian Upper Saga is going to continue. Thank you very right, much. Right, baby. God bless. Thank you, Disco Daddy. Thank you. So wasn't it a great show? Come back next week, every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Central Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip Hop Show. Man, it's a great one. Epic, epic. See you next week. Bye.